Bibles and open to the Gospel of John in chapter 20. Gospel of John chapter 20. And I'll give you a little summary of uh, what we did last week. Uh, last week we saw that uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried Jesus on a Friday. And then on a Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb to, uh, I guess, do some more uh, preparation for the, of the body, maybe uh, you know, making sure the right, that they did the right thing on Friday and to her satisfaction. And uh, Jesus appears to, to Mary. And she recognizes him by his voice. He says, Mary, and she turns and she sees that it's Jesus. And then he gives her instructions to go back and tell the apostles that he is alive. She obeys, tells them, and she, they think she's hallucinating. They do not accept her report. So this week, we're going to see that Jesus appears to the apostles as a group. And we're going to look at the circumstances surrounding his appearance. And we're going to pick up in verse 19. And here we discover the timing of his appearance. When it happens. Look what it says in John chapter 20 and verse 19. It says, Then the same day, as at evening, being the first day of the week. Now there's two identifying marks here. First of all, this is a Sunday. It's the first day of the week. Second of all, it's the same day. The same day as what? The same day he appeared to Mary. He appeared to Mary in the morning. But this is the same day at the evening. And this is when he's going to appear to the apostles. Uh, in fact, it's very interesting to me that every resurrection appearance in the gospel takes place on a Sunday. The next time John talks about and a resurrection appearance is the Thomas. It takes place the following Sunday. Everyone is on a Sunday. And I wonder, why doesn't Jesus show up on Saturday? After all, that's the Jewish Sabbath. Why doesn't God raise him on Saturday? And I'm convinced it's because Saturday represents the old covenant. With Jesus' death, a new covenant is established, and Sunday represents the new covenant. And the old versus the new is one of the great themes in this section that we're reading today. For example, when you think of Saturday as the Sabbath, Saturday commemorates the original creation. But Sunday represents a new creation. God's doing something new. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Uh, Saturday represents the founding of the nation of Israel. Sunday represents a restoration of the nation of Israel, starting with the apostles. Saturday represents the law. Sunday, however, is associated with the Spirit. And we're going to see what he does in this passage as it relates to the Spirit. And so on Saturday, Jesus is in the tomb. On Sunday, he leaves the tomb. So we worship on Sunday, uh, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists, they worship on Saturday. And they keep the Old Testament food laws. 
And uh, so anyway, uh, that's, that's how they differ from us. Now we have a couple candidates who fall into this category. For example, Ben Carson is a Seventh-day Adventist. And whether you realize this or not, Ted Cruz married a Seventh-day Adventist, which is interesting. I mean, just read Cruz's book, so that's interesting. Now, they go to Second Baptist Church in Houston right now. But anyway, so this is the wind. He, uh, he appears on a Sunday in the evening, the same day that he appears to Mary Magdalene. Now, look at the where. It says, when the doors were shut, that's when he appears, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled. And the word shut there means locked. So the disciples are behind closed doors, and they have locked the doors, and they are basically in hiding. And it goes on to say in verse 19, tells us why they're in hiding. What's their motive for hiding behind closed doors? For fear of the Jews. They think they may end up like Jesus. I mean, when Jesus was on trial, Peter didn't even defend him, did he? He denied him. Why did he deny Jesus? Because he was afraid. Why are they hiding behind closed doors? They're afraid. They're afraid they may end up exactly like Jesus. So... That's the where. Now look at the, the what happens here in verse 19. It says, on that day, Jesus came and stood in the midst. Uh, he just shows up. Okay? Uh, and he stands right there in their midst. And uh, how does he get in? Uh, there's no indication that he knocks. It just says, he came and stood right there in the middle of all of them. There are ten disciples gathered together right here. Thomas is not, is not here at this time. Judas is dead. He's hung himself. So he appears to these ten, and he shows up in the midst. And evidently, the laws that govern the natural body do not govern a resurrection body. You don't have to knock, and they don't have to open the door to let you in. Now, this is what distinguishes Jesus' body from Lazarus' body. Lazarus was raised from the dead too, wasn't he? Lazarus is alive at this moment. If he wants to see the apostles, guess what he has to do? He has to walk through the door, even though he has a resurrected body. He has a resurrected body, but he has a natural resurrected body. He's going to die again, isn't he? That resurrected body, which is simply his body, his life has been resuscitated, is going to get sick again. He's going to get the flu, you know. He's going to get all kinds of diseases. He's going to die. So not all resurrected bodies are equal. Jesus has a glorified resurrected body, which is not bound by the laws of nature. And Jesus will never die again. He's the first person of a new humanity first person of a new humanity that God's created. He created the first man, Adam, a natural man, and guess what? He has a new man that he's created through the resurrection of this Jesus Christ. So, that's important. And John the Revelator, most likely the same guy who writes this book, the Gospel of John, says in his vision, he said, and I saw one like the Son of Man standing in the midst 
same word, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, which means the seven churches. And Jesus is in our midst whether we see him or not. He's right here now. If he wanted to, he could manifest himself. He would all see him. And we'd be just like his disciples, caught off guard. But he's in our midst. And it's important that we realize this. And I think John wants his audience in 95 AD to realize that Jesus is in their midst as well. And then what Jesus does is very interesting. After he shows up, he gives them a comforting word. Look what he says at the end of verse 19. He says, Peace be with you. Shalom Aleichem. Peace be with you. Uh, why does he have to say, Peace be with you? Why does he have to calm them down? <laughs> because they're, yeah, they're caught off guard, they're afraid. Uh, twice in John's Gospel, he promises them peace. First in John 14, he says, Peace I give unto you. Not the kind of peace that the world gives. He says, Let not your heart be troubled, and neither let it be afraid. Neither let it be what? Afraid. Let not your heart be what? Troubled. Peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled. Be not afraid. That's what we need to tell many people in Paris right now. Especially the Christians. They need to take that promise to heart. In chapter 16, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you have peace. In this world you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, he says. Look, in this world, Paris, you'll have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. And so here Jesus says it for the third time in the Gospel of John. He says, peace be with you. I think John wants his audience in 95 AD to realize he's in their midst. And he says to them, peace be with you. Calm down a little bit. Why does he say that? Why does John include this in his gospel? Because his people in 95 AD are living under a terrible season named Domitian. And they're suffering persecution. And he wants them to hear this word. Peace be with you. It's a word for us as well. So first of all, he comforts them. Second of all, he convinces them. Look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He wanted to prove to them that it was him and his resurrected body still retains the marks of crucifixion and the spear uh, mark wound that went into his side. Uh, you know why he does this? You know why he shows them these marks? Uh, the Gospel of Luke says he did it because they were terrified and they supposed they had seen a ghost. They were terrified. What were they? Terrified. And suppose they had seen a... Now, if they thought they saw a ghost, then they thought Jesus was dead. They thought they were seeing his ghost. See, they weren't expecting a resurrection. They have rejected Mary's report. So when Jesus shows up, they said, just like Ebenezer Scrooge does. Marley, the ghost of Christmas past. <coughs> well, Marley's dead. Guess what they thought they saw? A ghost. They didn't think Jesus was alive, so Jesus says, hey, ghosts don't have uh, wounds like this. 
and he shows them his wounds. He tries to convince them. The marks in your body are identifying <coughs> marks. So if the police are hunting for a crook, criminal, or if you go into uh, the post office and see those morning posters, they will tell you how you know whether this is the person or not. He's got a three-inch scar on his, on his cheek. He's got a tattoo on his neck. He's got two pierced ears. You know. He's got a gold tooth. He's got a marble for an eye. He's got cauliflower ears, six toes. You know. Well, when you see these things, you know that this ain't that's the guy. Because marks are identifying marks on the body. And so Jesus wants to convince them that it's him because they are fearful. So he comforts them because they're fearful. And he convinces them because they think they've seen a ghost. So he comforts them and he convinces them. And next, he commissions them. In fact, look, what, look at the end of verse 20. Uh, before we even go on to that, it says, Then the disciples were glad. Suddenly they realized that it's him. Mary was right that they had saw the Lord. Now he, now he uh, commissions them. Now look at verse 20. He said to them again, Peace be to you. Fourth time he says it in the Gospel of John. Uh, I guess he figures they need it one more time, and so he wants to comfort them, calm them down just a little bit. And so he says, Peace with you. And then he says this. Here's the commission. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Uh, what did the Father send Jesus to do? He sent Jesus to reveal himself to the masses of people. Uh, he sent Jesus to preach the kingdom of God and demonstrate the power of the kingdom of God through healings and, uh, and, and other things, miracles. Okay. So Jesus says, uh, just as the Father sent me, and Jesus has completed his mission, God sent him in the past, and Jesus carried it out. So, he says, I am sending you. And this sending is an ongoing sending. It's not past tense. It's a present tense. It's ongoing, and it transcends. It goes beyond the apostles and it extends to us. So, this commission includes us as well. So, Jesus appears in his resurrected body for a purpose. And the purpose is to send them. That's why he appears, to send them. He appeared to Mary, and he sent her back. He just didn't appear to her just to say, hey, I want to show you, I'm alive, here I am. He appeared in order to send her, go back and tell. He appears to the disciples in order to send them, go and tell. He commissions them. That's the purpose of his appearance. When he appears to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, and then what he does? He says, I'm sending you. <laughs> I have chosen you to send you to Gentiles and kings and the Jews. And so his appearance is for a purpose. The purpose is to send the individuals. Now he's going to empower them for the mission. He empowers them for the mission. Look at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is one of the most controversial verses in the Gospel of John. 
and uh, it produces a lot of confusion. And so what we need to do is we need to ask the question, uh, when Jesus said to the apostles, receive the Holy Spirit, did they actually receive the Holy Spirit? But we have to ask that question. When he said, when he breathed, he went, receive the Holy Spirit, did they receive the Holy Spirit? And if they did receive the Holy Spirit, right here, then what about Pentecost? What happened on Pentecost when they received the Holy Spirit? Are there two givings? Two receivings of the Holy Spirit? One in John? One on the day of Pentecost? Recorded in the book of Acts? If you were to ask a Pentecostal, they'd say yes. There are two givings of the Spirit. The first is when you get saved and the Holy Spirit comes in. That's called the indwelling of the Spirit. And then there's a second giving of the Spirit called the baptism of the Spirit, the Pentecostal baptism of the Spirit that's accompanied with tongues. And that's the filling of the Spirit. And they use this verse to prove that there are two givings of the Spirit. So I want you to see how doctrine is formed. Okay? Now I think that's a misunderstanding of the passage. I don't want to explain why I believe that. If there are two givings of the Spirit, why doesn't anyone else ever mention it? Why is it not mentioned anywhere else in the Scripture? Why doesn't Paul say, hey, there's two things that need to happen, you need to have, you need to have two receiving of the Spirit. That is not in the Scriptures. Uh, another reason, um, what about Thomas? How many apostles are here? Ten. Did he just breathe on ten of them and pop? And they got the spirit and Thomas was left out? That doesn't even make sense. So I don't think there's two giving to the spirit. If they got the spirit at this moment, it sure didn't change their life. I mean, they're exactly the same after he breathes on them as they were before he breathes on them. If you go down to verse 26, guess what you see them doing? Hiding behind locked doors, still there, a week later, eight days later, still behind locked doors. They haven't changed one whit. And when Peter shows up eight days later, and they say, hey, we saw Jesus last week, you don't believe him. There's nothing in their life that indicates that their life has been changed. They're still, well, why are you hiding behind closed doors then? So it just doesn't quite make sense. And if you go to chapter 21, the apostles now are back in Galilee and they're fishing. They've decided to go back fishing. What did Jesus tell them? As the Father sent me, what? They should be preaching. What are they doing? Fishing. He has to show up again on the seashore. And he has some work to do when he gets to that seashore. So what's going on here? Why does John say Jesus breathed on them and he said receive the Holy Spirit? So what I think is happening here is that uh, this passage is describing an enacted prophecy. Some prophecies were spoken. Isaiah says, you know, unto you, you know, virgin shall conceive, that's a spoken prophecy. But some prophecies are enacted. They're dramatized. Remember, uh, God said to Hosea, I want you to marry a woman who's unfaithful. Her name is Gomer. Do you remember when he said that? 
that he's this poor guy has to go marry this woman who ends up running around with other men and uh, gets divorced and uh, lives a life of a prostitute to the point where she can't even function anymore. Her body's diseased, she's broken down. One of her lovers uh, puts her on the slave market and can't even get 10 cents for her. You know, it's one of those, that's how bad she is. And then God tells Gomer, go and buy her back. What was previously yours, buy back. And so Gomer does it. It's an enacted prophecy. God says, and this is what I'm going to do with Israel. I'm Israel's husband. She's my wife. She's been unfaithful to me, but guess what I'm going to do? want to bring it back. That's called an enacted prophecy. And Jesus is acting out this prophecy. This is an event that's going to happen in the future. They're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and he's acting it out, and this enacted prophecy points to a future event. Now, when you look at this concept of breathing on somebody or something, your mind should go back to a past event, way back to Genesis. Remember what that is? Who does God breathe on? He breathes on Adam. Takes Adam out of the dust. And he goes. And he breathes into Adam the breath of life. And he starts a new, he starts the first humanity. Here's the, here is the human, the first human being. And he has the breath of God in him. There's a second breathing that we find in the scripture. And that's found in Ezekiel 37. So I want you to mark your Bible, John 20, and I want you to go back to Ezekiel, and you'll find all the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then you'll find Ezekiel. And go to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, this is where God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel. And uh, he's talking about his people, the nation of Israel. He calls uh, Ezekiel the son of man. In verse 4, God says, uh, I want you to prophesy to these bones. He sees a field of dead bones, dry bones. God says, I want you to prophesy to these bones. Oh, dry bones! Hear the word of the Lord. That's Ezekiel 37, 4. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath enter into you, and you shall live. Look down at verse 9. He also said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, O son of man. Say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, O son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. These are my people who are dead. And I'm going to restore them. I'm going to bring them back. And here you see it. Uh, an act of prophecy, don't you? Where you have to do all these things. Well, I think that's what you see happening here with Jesus. So go back to John chapter 20. God plans to restore the kingdom of Israel. Ezekiel prophesies it, and Jesus symbolizes it through this enacted prophecy. And he breathes on them, and this points to a future restoration of the kingdom, and the apostles are the core of this new kingdom that he's establishing. 
the 12 apostles will eventually become the core of this kingdom. So this is an active prophecy, I think, that points to a future empowering to do this mission that he has given them. Now, not only is this mission empowered, I want you to notice that there's this missionary pronouncement that they're to make. Look at verse 23. He says this to the apostles after he says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Part of the church's mission is to proclaim forgiveness or to proclaim guilt. Um, this scares Protestants, quite frankly. The Catholics have no problem with this text. They have developed an entire priesthood and confessional booms based on this passage. That the priest says, you're forgiven, my son. You know, go out and say six Hail Marys or whatever, and you're forgiven. The priest announces forgiveness. And we are so scared of being tainted by Roman Catholicism that we don't know what to do with verses like this. But I'm convinced that the word, what Jesus says is what we're to do. We're to announce forgiveness. We're to announce guilt. Remember when Jesus forgave sin with religious leaders said? You've committed blasphemy because nobody can forgive sin except who? God. See, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin. And that's true. Ultimately, God's the only one that can forgive sin. But God chose to give the high priest of Israel the authority to pronounce forgiveness of sins. He was God's representative. When the high priest spoke, it was like God was speaking. Uh, Jesus even talked about it in the Gospel of John. When Caiaphas made a statement, uh, John says, and, and the, the high priest speaks for God. So when the high priest would say, you're forgiven, guess what? You're forgiven. Remember the lepers who got healed? Jesus healed the lepers. He says, go back and show it to the what? High priest. They'll pronounce whether you're healed or not. So Jesus is God's high priest. The high priest of Israel at Jesus' time was not appointed by God. He was appointed by Caesar. Did you know that? Did you know the high priest worked for Caesar? Did you know Herod the Great worked for Caesar? They were all appointed by Caesar, the emperor of Rome. Jesus is claiming to be God's high priest, and thus he can pronounce forgiveness of sin. And now, guess what? He says, we can pronounce forgiveness of sin. Just as the Old Testament high priest could forgive sin, he's made us into a priesthood. We're a priesthood of believers. When we go out and preach, when I go out and preach, and I say, repent, and put your faith in Jesus Christ, and a person does that, guess what I can say? You're forgiven. I can say that with 100% assurance. And if they reject that message and don't repent, guess what I can say? Your sin remains on you. I have that authority, and so do you. And that's part of the authority that God gives the church. So what you have is on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. The enacted prophecy points to the giving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes. And what does Peter get up and say? 
Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. And guess what? 3,000 do it, and he says that their sins were forgiven. Just like that. You see all of this being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So we can preach the forgiveness of sins. And that's what Luke 24 says. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name unto all of the nations. Also, you see in this passage, very interesting, you see the Trinity in here. You see the Father, as the Father sent me. You see Jesus in the passage. And you see the Holy Spirit. So we have the Trinity involved in this uh, missionary enterprise. And uh, this ends Jesus' first appearance, first Sunday, appearing as the resurrected Lord. First to Mary, and he sends her back to tell the apostles. Now the apostles, and sends them out to tell others. But it extends to all of us. We all have a great commission to fulfill. And therefore we need to, we need to fulfill it. We need to be added, all added, and all of us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture which is important we see how false doctrine can develop we can see how some can take statements like if you say someone's forgiven they're forgiven and turn it into a whole enterprise a whole religious enterprise we can see how people can take the statement receive the Holy Spirit and turn it into a doctrine of two givings of the Holy Spirit. You see how false doctrine is based on a misinterpretation of Scripture. Oh Lord, help us to understand the Scripture the way it was meant to be understood. And help us to be part of this great prophetic message. Help us to be those who take the gospel all the way. In Christ's name. Amen.